And welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here, as always, with my friend and comrade Derek Davison, and we're excited to welcome to the podcast today Emily Grebel. Uh, Emily is the chair of the history department and a professor of history at Vanderbilt University. Uh, I love Nashville; it's a great place to be. And she's the author of the recent "Muslims and the Making of Modern Europe," which was released in 2021 and which has won several awards. And it's really a fantastic book. And we invited Emily on today to talk about the book. So, Emily, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, So very basic question. What made you want to write this book and how did this book come to be? I imagine when you're writing about Muslims in modern Europe, there's a political dimension, but I could be wrong. Well, I'm a historian and I had written a book on uh, Muslims, Christians and Jews in World War II Sarajevo. Um, It was my dissertation, my first book, And as I was finishing that book, I had a lot of lingering questions, uh, particularly around the relationship between Muslim communities and the state. And I was interested in the post-war period, particularly after World War II and Muslim anti-communist movements. And so I started to go back to local archives and dig through records and found myself pretty surprised by sort of the ways that Muslims continued to identify themselves along confessional terms and also the persistence of Sharia law as a legal system and as a code um, and a set of uh, institutions and structures um, that they had persisted well into Tito's communist Yugoslavia. This was not my image as a Yugoslav historian of what communist Yugoslavia looked like. And so I started to kind of move backwards in time to figure out where this came from, wasn't as familiar with the scholarship, started reading really broadly, found myself, kept moving backward, you know, further and further into the past, ended up in the 19th century, having to learn how to kind of reread Cyrillic handwriting and other kinds of uh, sources, and trying to make sense of what it meant to have this sort of really important, large Muslim communities in European states um, as they had gone through different forms of nation building and all these ideological movements. Um, And so the book didn't begin as a study per se of Muslims in modern Europe. It began really as a study of how did how did we end up in the middle of the 20th century? But as I started to write it and answer those questions of how we end up in the middle of the 20th century, with large communities of Muslims and Islamic institutions in the middle of Europe, I realized this was not just a Balkan story, but a European story. And I wanted to try to write it and tell it in that way. I'm not sure if that's totally clear. (laughs) No, that's absolutely clear. And I I think it leads into the question that I was going to ask next, which is this question of Europe. And what is Europe? Uh, and of course, it's a historically situated and contingent. You know, in the 1990s, you see a lot of people talking about Middle Europa and things like that. Uh, and that? you're taking, as, as a historian of Yugoslavia in this book, Yugoslavia and its surrounds, you know, the Balkans, you make a, an important claim that these are European histories. Right. So could you maybe talk a little bit about the divide you see in scholarship between what's considered 
proper Europe and what's not usually considered and how your book contributes to that debate? Absolutely. I mean, I think the best place to start to answer that question is that when war broke out in Ukraine last year, immediately we had all of these news articles about how this was the first war in Europe, right, in 50 years or since World War II, sort of completely erasing and forgetting about the wars that took place in the Balkans. Um, and with that, erasing the Balkans as part of Europe. Um, and I think that that has been kind of a common trope, especially among American and West European thinkers and politicians, that the Balkans have somehow been relegated into a non-European sphere. I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I touch upon some of them in the book. I think it's places that were at one point part of the Ottoman Empire. I think it's places that um, had historically... Orthodox Christian and Muslim communities that dominated in different ways. Uh, but there was definitely a rewriting of history of Europe that sort of separated the Balkans and, and much of Eastern Europe as somehow kind of an other. And I don't think that that works for us. I think you know, it doesn't help us in terms of thinking about either the history or the cultures of these places or of Europe. Um, and that we need a more cohesive understanding of Europe and that the Balkans are and were always sort of central to it. I like when I when I teach a class on Muslims in modern Europe, I always ask the student, you know, is Austria Hungary Europe? Of course. They're like, yes, right? Is Greece Europe? Why yes, right? So why then is Kosovo not necessarily sent also Europe, right? I mean, where where do these lines come from? And I think that part of what I try to do in the book is show that the ideas of Europe and Muslims are being kind of created in a mutual conversation over the course of the 19th and 20th century, much to the detriment of European uh, politics and society today. So what is that idea of Europe? Because I think if you asked 100 people, you might get 100 different answers. So what is the European project? And how does that develop over the course of the 19th and 20th centuries? Well, I don't think there is one European project, right? I mean, that's part of part of the problem or the part of the challenge that we have. Um, I think today there's an idea um, of the European project that's very much tied to the EU and Western Europe. I think it's grounded in false presumptions of the ways that secularism developed, the ways that liberty and equality kind of and citizenship emerged. Uh, and part of what I think we need to think seriously about is that, you know, these are, there's a lot of myths. Right? I'm obviously not the first one to talk about this. There's many scholars who have pointed out that, you know, there's, there's the myth of European secularism and there's a myth of what liberty and citizenship look like and even kind of concepts of equality. Uh, one of the examples I always like to throw out is you know, we have this idea of laïcité and French secularism as so central you know, to kind of this West European idea um, of Europe. But you know, France didn't give Muslim citizenship without renouncing Islam sort of broadly across the empire until 1946. But we had Muslim citizens in other parts of Europe much earlier. And so we, I think our narratives have become flawed based on more contemporary ideas of what this Europe is. And I think we let characters like Orban and other sort of right-wing figures define it rather than sort of exploring how it was evolving over time. 
I'm very interested in this question of geography. Is there a world where you could imagine the Balkans as being part of Asia? Why well, identify it as part of Europe? What work does that do? So I think the Balkans can be in conversation with so much of the world. Um, there's a famous uh, sort of description of the Balkans to Bengal complex, sort of think about sort of Islam on um, in sort of a different uh, historical geographical arc. Uh, I'm trained as a European historian. And so I come to the study of the Balkans from that perspective. And uh, those are you know the languages I work with, the sources I work with, just the historiography I came at. But part of what I think is so critical and what's happened, you know, especially over the last 20 years, are is sort of a breakdown of some of these boundaries where you have more conversations across sort of geographic and, and also disciplinary lines. And so you end up with you know, historically, Balkanists always had to choose between these two conferences. There was MESA, Middle Eastern Studies, and then there was ACES, which used to have a, a different name, the Slavic Studies. And for years, when I was in graduate school, they were on the same weekend. I mean, so you literally <laughs> were choosing, right? you know, are you going to go to A or are you going to go to B? And, you know, that really created a, a strong divide. Um, and a number of Ottomanists have really been leading the way in challenging that, which has been awesome. Um, and saying, let's let's actually have these larger conversations across. Let's not let these arbitrary boundaries define our scholarship and the ways we think about places. So that's a long answer. But I think, you know, part of what's fascinating about the Balkans is that it is an economic, cultural, intellectual, political dialogue with sort of large parts of other, you know, the former Ottoman Empire, North Africa, other parts of the Mediterranean, South, Southern Europe, but also with Eastern Europe, and then also with Western Europe. It's, it's, it's not, it, and it shouldn't be siloed. No, that's, that's really compelling to me. And before we get to the story your book tells, can we talk a little bit about Muslims and Islam? Because I come from not a full, but basically a Jewish studies background. My advisor is a historian of European Jewry. Um, and it, it, it is interesting, and I think you, your point is absolutely correct, that oftentimes when, when people think about minorities in Europe, particularly in the 19th and 20th century, Jews and the Jewish experience are centered. And what do we learn by centering Islam and centering Muslims as part of this larger European story that we don't necessarily get by focusing slowly on European Jewry and eventually its eradication during the Holocaust? Mm -hmm. So I think that, I mean, what I always like to say is that Muslims, you know, depending on your definition of Europe, Muslims have been the largest confessional minority and yet are completely kind of subjugated to sort of this marginal realm of European history. You know, we don't have a lot of institutes for the study of Europe's Muslims. We don't have a lot of grants. There's not a lot of, you know, professorships, if you read, not that there's a lot of jobs right now anyway, but if you look at academic jobs, you are rarely going to find one that is thinking in those terms. And I think that that's because of the ways that Europe and European history has defined itself in opposition to Islam. And I think this stems from sort of Orientalist institutes of the 19th century and sort of thinking about Islam as belonging to a different realm of history and politics and culture that, you know, today we would call Middle Eastern studies without integrating or thinking about Muslims as actual 
you know, citizen subjects, European residents, parts of Europe, um, of the European populace. And so I think what we gain is a more complex understanding of how uh, different European states and societies understood minorities, how different minority groups engaged with those states. We also gain uh, a real understanding of what it meant for sort of a majority population to shift and become a minority, whereas the Jewish populations tended to be consistently minority in Europe. Um, Muslim populations, especially in Ottoman areas, they started out as majority or at least politically dominant and economically dominant populations in the Ottoman Empire. And then we sort of have this reversal. And so they are dis- sort of have distinct trajectories from Jewish communities and yet also, I think, clue us into how secularism was working, how sort of a Christian project was understood uh, and how different minorities came to operate within and also experience the emergence of modernizing projects, nationalizing projects, um, state building, those kinds of things. And I can get more into it with like minority rights and how it looks different right? <laughs> for different communities. But I'll, I'll yeah, we'll get, let we'll you get ask. into that. Yeah, we'll get into that in a bit. Uh, and just the final broad question is, could you maybe talk a little bit about the Enlightenment and Islam and how Enlightenment and European secularization developed with Islam as this type of other, which might have contributed to what you talked about, which is the siloing off of the Balkans in general and Islam in particular from the imagination of what Europe is? Yeah, so there's definitely, through the Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment into the 19th century, this idea that Muslims are not of the European project. Much sort of early concepts of kind of European civilization that get put forward depict it in opposition to the Ottoman state, Ottoman society, and with that often comes with Muslims. Muslims, especially in Ottoman Europe, which also then can include the Caucasus, right, up into Crimea, the the Muslims communities there are sort of understood to belong to the Ottoman Empire. And so as Europe sort of pushes back against the Ottoman Empire, right, and here I, you know, it's, it's ironic because they the Ottomans are European empire themselves. But as, as other European states push back, they kind of wrap Muslims into kind of an other and, and see them as part of this Ottoman past that they are trying to reclaim, conquer. And it's, it's not, you know, the, the language and the rhetoric is not that different from subsequent, you know, rhetoric that colonial powers will be using to claim other Muslim lands. Um, that these you know, they need to be civilized, they need to be brought into modernity, that they cannot govern themselves, or these kinds of sort of racist tropes will also play out in, in European lands as, as different states are sort of thinking of themselves and trying to claim uh, historic Muslim territories. Emily, I, I'd like to, to actually follow up on that. You, you This is sort of getting into the realm of like, what if history, but you start the book or you position the book uh, with 1878, the end of the the Russian Ottoman war, which, which we can talk about. I'd like to talk about a little bit more about how you came to land on that as your kind of starting point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is a, a point at which, you know, a lot of Muslim populations in the Balkans become just kind of almost overnight wind up in, in 
Christian-dominated states. Uh, it's also a point where it's a, it's sort of a hinge point in the sense that had you know Great Britain not gotten involved or or you know kind of nudged the Russians, there there was a Russian army marching on Constantinople. You could have seen uh, you know some really drastic end to the Ottoman Empire, or at least, you know, severe reduction in the Ottoman Empire uh, much earlier than, than say, World War I. So I, I, I wonder how much of this sort of othering of these Muslim populations, specifically in these Christian Balkan states, is a product of the fact that they become uh, citizens of these states, subjects of these states, at a time when the Ottoman Empire still is still there, it's still a going concern, still a potential threat. Is there a world where the Ottomans kind of recede sooner and these populations are not perceived as kind of foreign? They're not perceived as, you know, a potential fifth column or, or some, you know, sort of Ottoman, uh, you know, potentially Ottoman threat. And they're incorporated more fully into the states that they become part of? You know, it's a really interesting question. I mean, I think to think about it, actually, we can test or push back against the 1878 starting point and look to the earlier period where you didn't have treaties that required that new states give Muslim citizenship rights. So part of why I start in 1878 um, is because it's an interesting legal and political starting point in European history. And this, this comes back to Dan's question earlier. You know, I am a Europeanist and I was approaching this from kind of these questions of law and politics and state building um, citizenship in, in a broader European context. And so this is this moment where you know, at the Treaty of Berlin, European diplomats insist that these smaller countries that are claiming Ottoman lands, that they give their confessional minority citizenship. And that includes Jews. All right, so it's this moment where you really have, I call it citizenship without consent, because the Muslims don't necessarily want citizenship. And most of them don't want their lands to be redrawn into Greece or Bulgaria or Romania or Serbia or Montenegro. Most of them don't want to be occupied by Austria, Hungary, and Bosnia. So if you look at earlier periods, though, of sort of what that looks like, um, I don't think it's more of an integration story. I think it's actually a broader expulsion and violence story. If you look at what happens, for example, you know, in Serbia um, in the earlier part of the 19th century, as different treaties happen and Muslims are sort of marginalized and Serbia sort of absorbs more Ottoman lands. Or there's a dual political system. And so it's not so much necessarily always in terms of conquest, but in terms of a shifting of who has power between the Ottomans and the Serbs. And um, Muslims become victims, right? They become expelled. Their homes are razed. They, we have these terrible stories of, of mass violence and atrocities. And so I, I don't know if, if the Ottomans didn't still exist, you know, if, if this story would have looked better. Um, I think that in, in some ways, because the Ottomans continued to exist, it allowed for treaties where different you know, new states were having to give rights to populations that otherwise would have had rights in the Ottoman state. So this discourse of rights is, is evolving. But I, I don't know exactly, obviously, because it's a hypothetical question. But I do think that, you know, having the Ottomans as an ongoing player in a lot of this uh, matter. 
So why don't let's get to the book finally? <laughs> uh, so so why don't we start with this with this uh, part one, which you termed the long post Ottoman transition, and and we could maybe elucidate if you wouldn't mind if you could elucidate why start at the Congress of Berlin and and what is happening here and why is this such an crucial turning point in the history of Muslims in Europe? Yeah. So as I was saying, it's a really it, it's it's kind of a legal and political turning point. Um, the Congress of Berlin was. The Congress and subsequent treaty that oversaw the redrawing of the political boundaries of Ottoman Europe um, into different kinds of, of states and polities. Now, some of those uh, continued to be a sort of part of the Ottoman Empire in different ways, in autonomous arrangements. Others were occupied, Austria-Hungary occupies Bosnia-Herzegovina, and then others were independent states like Serbia in Montenegro. Um, and in that treaty, it's really the first time where new ideas of rights are codified in international law. And the treaties require states that absorb Ottoman territory to provide uh, citizenship to and, and rights to minorities. Previous to that, when European states absorbed Ottoman territory, right, or other European states absorbed Ottoman European territory, it's a better way to say that, you know, Muslims were presumed to belong to the Ottomans. And so expulsion was commonplace. And you know, it was presumed that they would go home, right, or be or return, even though home was where they, you know, was was now absorbed into a, a new state. Um, so that was why I started there throughout the early part of the book, is, as I'm sure you saw, you know, I kind of moved back and forth because a lot of what new states are playing with were actually tweaks on pre-existing Ottoman institutions, laws. You know, there's a lot of continuity before and after 1878 that comes up in the book, but you got to start somewhere. <laughs> so, <laughs> so true. Um could we also maybe talk about this thing you call the Muslim legal other? Because I think what mm-hmm. is so interesting about your book is it really does focus on law as this instantiation of more abstract principles of belonging. So mm-hmm. what is this this category of the Muslim legal other? How does it come into being? And why is it so important for understanding the place of Muslims in modern Europe? So what I argue in the book is that law becomes the critical sort of framework for thinking about and identifying Muslims within individual legal codes in different European states and also at the level of international law. And Muslims, while also a confessional category, also can be encompassed broad linguistic and cultural and ethnic categories. Um, The ways that sort of the idea of Muslim emerges in a legal framework is as a unitary, a unitary group that is bound by a particular set of laws that pertain to them. And part of what that is, is religious autonomy uh, and the persistence of a Islamic legal structure. And there's pros and cons to this process. Um, and it's it's something we also see in sort of, you know, British Empire and French Empire and you know, Russian Empire. It gets different names, personal status law. But what we see is um, a relegation of Muslims to a kind of distinct legal sphere. And then lots of things can happen around that legal sphere. Sometimes it's a place of agency, sometimes it's a place of surveillance and control on the part of the state. But the legal framework 
is sort of built into the minority framework in a way that we don't see with a lot of other minorities. For example, Roma are not defined, you know, predominantly through a distinct legal framework. Uh, But with the Muslim legal other, as I understand it, and I, as I frame it, states are constantly negotiating over the status and rights and position of Muslims through kind of a legal language and, and rhetoric and with an understanding that there are distinct institutions that fall within the realm of Islamic law. And that then gets paired to me with the questions of religious freedom, right? And so who gets to decide and define what that Islamic legal realm is going to be and how does that work with new ideas of liberalism and, and religious freedom? And I, and I feel like those questions get played out in through jurisdictional competition and through legal debates and also through aspects of Islam that were falling within sort of this larger rubric, such as Islamic schools and waqf or bakuf, uh, as they're called in South Slavic, which are the uh, pious endowments. How does that process relate to the minoritization of, of Muslims in the post-Ottoman lands that you talked about? Because I think they're they're an other in some sense because they're able to be an other because they they become no longer the majority population. So just what are the literal facts on the ground? Well, what happens in this post-Ottoman period to the sheer number of Muslims who were living in this space for centuries? So what happens, you mean in legal terms or what happens sort of all over? <laughs> all, uh, like all, first of all, to what happens first to the literal people? And then how is that reflected yeah. in how, you know, this Europeanizing project relates to Sharia? Right. Big question. So there are a number of different options. As these lands are shifting from Ottoman to other political states, Muslims face options and some Muslims face no options. So they can uh, certain Muslims choose to leave. They migrate. Others choose to rebel. There's widespread insurgency. Others choose to figure out a way to work with local new local governments and those relationships can be very contentious and they can at different points different muslim leaders have different kinds of power because of sort of the ways that muslims are defined as a confessional legal minority practitioners of law end up having significant or playing significant roles in defining what a Muslim minority community is going to look like in these states. They are oftentimes the people who new politicians are going to negotiate with. So, you know, an Islamic scholar, a mufti, a qadi, which is an Islamic judge. These are the people that are sort of at the front lines of negotiating with new state authorities for the on behalf of the rest of the community. Um, and this really defines and shapes the ways that Muslim minorities are able to engage with new states and and new polities. Across the region, we have hundreds of thousands of people who um, end up getting expelled, who are killed. This is a very violent story. Part of what I try to capture in the book is that paired with this violent story is also a story of people who stay and people who are making lives and trying to figure out what that's going to look like. Now, some of them hope for, you know, Ottoman restitution. Some of them hope for their own political states. In the creation of Albania in 1912, 
offers a new kind of political possibility because it's a Muslim majority state that's created within, you know, formerly Ottoman lands. But these kinds of, you know, political questions are not entirely clear at the outset. And so what we find are a lot of negotiations over what it's going to mean to be a minority. Do we want to even be a minority? Do we want to try to have a different political arrangement? Um, a sense that this all, this whole system could be temporary, the system put in place and you know, the borders keep changing. So 1878, they changed. 1912, they changed. 1918, they changed. 1923, they changed. So we have all these changing borders. And at each point, people are saying, well, maybe this is, we're going to have a new political system now. Maybe this is our turn, right? Maybe now the borders will be redrawn in a way that gives us you know, more political rights and control over our homes and, and our societies. So Emily, we, uh, to just continue the the chronology, then can you talk a bit about uh, how these communities develop after Berlin and and moving into the twentieth century, and especially kind of what happens to these these communities during the Balkan Wars, the first and second Balkan Wars in the the nineteen tens. Yeah. So, you know, through the early 20th century, I mean, there's a constant sort of back and forth of nation building and negotiation and sort of political compromise. One of the areas that we see this most in is schools. What does it mean to create? You have all these nationalizing states that are creating schools. A lot of those schools are really doing a form of Christian indoctrination. Muslim families don't want to send their kids to, you know, ideological indoctrination and Christianity. There's a lot of questions over forced conversion um, and how this is all going to work. These questions really come to the forefront during the Balkan Wars when, once again, we have mass violence. We also have these questions of sort of, you know, are the political boundaries being redrawn again? If so, how and to whose benefit? Again, we have sort of new waves of mass migration um, out of the Balkans and to Turkey. Um, also, we have migration to Albania that begins after 1912 and a lot of cross-border traffic. And so, you know, these communities are developing both within the context of through these nationalizing and state-building projects and also in the context of sort of war and turmoil and multiple generations of successive traumas, which I think play out because it you know, it's very difficult to know who you can trust and how, you know, what the future is going to look like. So by the end of the Balkan Wars, and we're in the middle of, you know, the wars sort of kind of trickle into one another. So part of what I deal with in the book is that, you know, for some people, you know, we think of the Balkan Wars as ending in 1913. But in certain places, you know, war is just continuing in different forms, or it's anarchy, or it's, you, know, you still have famine and disease, and you've got a local governor, um, but you're not quite sure even what state you're in, and the states keep changing, and new militaries show up, and suddenly you're in 1915, and now you're in the First World War, but frankly, it doesn't really look much different than 1912 looked in terms of how things have developed. And so we kind of impose these you know, periods on, on communities. But if you start looking at the bottom up at the communities themselves, you know, 1915 doesn't necessarily look that much different than 1912 for a lot of people in the Balkans. Yeah, I think people, I mean, people group the first and second world wars for the Balkans. It's really 
Like it goes all the way back before that, even to yeah. I mean, even nineteen oh eight, there's violence. You know, I mean, when the Young Turks take over in the Ottoman Empire, they you know, there's a low grade civil war that breaks out in you know what is today Kosovo and parts of North Macedonia. There was really interesting dissertation written uh, about this uh, by a a scholar about ten years ago, and you know, it's. uh, there's these ongoing kind of crises and the local often matters a lot more to people than what we would see as the global. And so we're all, I, I think as historians, we're always trying to kind of fit you know, groups and regions into these larger global narratives. But even 1918, you know, it doesn't end. It's ongoing. And, and I think, you know, what I've started to think about recently is a lot of the violence that we see in Yugoslavia from 1918 through the early 1920s, I think is also really tied up to the violence we see in other parts of the Ottoman Empire at the empire's end. And it's sort of this broader narrative of sort of bringing apart and taking apart the Ottoman Empire actually has this Yugoslav component that sort of got lost because in 1918, Yugoslavia becomes a state and suddenly all that violence gets understood as just now we're talking about Yugoslavia. But I think actually the you know early years of Yugoslavia, much like the early years of modern Turkey, are very much about the kind of disentangling of an Ottoman Empire and what the end of the empire means. So can we maybe talk about what the end of the empire means for Muslims in, in the Balkans? And, and the way you describe it is that they become minorities. So wh- what do you mean by that? And what are the legal shifts and political shifts that happened as World War I comes to a formal close in uh, 1918? And the Ottoman Empire no longer formally exists. Well, the Ottoman Empire does still, they still exist for another, right? <laughs> another four or five years. But in 1918, 1919, there's big questions for Muslims across the Balkans about, you know, what the Ottoman Empire no longer lit, exists in that area. And so it's pretty clear that there's not going to be any more Ottoman, there's no, you know, more possibility of Ottoman restitution. And so what we find are a lot of Muslims start to look at, well, how then do we sort of negotiate with these new political states? We don't want to leave. And again, many don't. Then how do we negotiate with these new states and protect our families and our property and, you know, in our societies? There's a lot of violence in 1918, 1919, 1920. A lot of it's directed toward Muslims. There's a lot of discrimination. Again, sort of this idea that they are affiliated with the Ottomans in some way, that they're going to be a fifth column, that they're not trustworthy, a lot of litmus tests. Um, A lot of the attention gets focused also, once again, on muftis and qadi and religious figures who were kind of dominant leaders of communities. And it's a classic way of severing off the leadership in order to sort of break up local communities. Um, and so what you find there, sort of members of the Muslim elite start to look at different kinds of negotiating that's going on at an international scale, and they are attracted to the idea of minorities. Um, the concept of the protected minority becomes really important through the Paris Peace Treaties. We have lots of minorities across Europe who are fighting to have different kinds of rights and protections. And you start to see Muslims in Yugoslavia using the same rhetoric and starting to ask and and ultimately demand rights that they believe are enshrined in both international law and in the laws of their state. This is really crucial. Could you actually talk about the different positions that are that are being 
um, proffered here. Oftentimes on this show, at least because I'm a historian of U.S. foreign relations, we think about this moment as being Wilsonianism versus Leninism. But there's obviously mm-hmm. lar- much larger stories, particularly when it relates to minorities. So what are the traditions that are being drawn upon? What are the arguments putting forward? How does this relate to ethno-nationalism? I, I think it's worth pausing for a second here to talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the question, you know, so you have in in the rhetoric of, you know, it's we, we usually give Wilson credit for this self-determination rhetoric, but it's being used by lots of different diplomats and political thinkers that are imagining what Europe is going to look like after sort of a world of land empires. And it's not just about the Ottomans. It's obviously also about what we do with you know, the Habsburg legacies and we, what we do with the Prussian legacies. And what becomes clear is that as, you know, if you're going to move to a system of homogenous national states, and if you're going to understand sovereignty as lying in the nation, that you're going to end up with lots and lots of people who don't fit into states. I think Mark Mazower once said, you know, he gave some number, a couple million people, you know, who, who just don't fit it. Um, and, and different groups are going to not fit for different reasons. And what we find is through these negotiations, you know, try different so-called minority groups begin to fight for different kinds of rights. A lot of those are based in ethno-linguistic terms. So Italians wanting to be able to send their children to an Italian language school that's in Yugoslavia, not losing the right to speak your language. Some of those are also in terms of kind of broader publishing rights in different linguistic groups of being allowed to have national societies, uh, whether that's a Zionist society, a Jewish society, whether that's a Hungarian society, or you know, most ultimately most problematic were a lot of the German rights that happened throughout Europe where German minorities were able to claim particular linguistic national cultural rights. So Muslims are looking at this in Yugoslavia and thinking, okay, what are what is this going to be? For some, there's certainly this question of you know Albanian and Turkish language rights. But what we find is that the majority of Muslims start to define their own rights according to kind of two things. The first is the right to retain a Sharia judiciary and the right to have autonomy over um, an Islamic legal system broadly defined. And the second is property, which actually also is entangled in some ways with um, Islamic law and institutions because it includes pious endowments. And so uh, what we find in Yugoslavia is a pitch for minority rights in a different sort of in a different tone and in a different language. And, um, And they win. In the 1921 Constitution of Yugoslavia enshrines a Sharia judiciary, and while the state ultimately you know, undermines a lot of their initial promises for property rights through their agrarian reform campaigns, they also try to kind of meet, at least in some places, meet Muslims partway um, over property rights. And so you don't have the same kind of questions of, kind of ethnicity and language and culture that you're seeing in other parts of the region and even other parts of the state, like the Hungarians in, um, in you know, Vojvodina or the Italians in Istria. Um, it, it sort of takes on a different form. And I think what, what that tells us, and if we take that kind of analysis to other parts of Europe, I think we're going to see that the whole question of minority rights has these local inflections that are playing out in really dynamic ways. 
Emily, I wonder um, if you could talk uh, briefly about what the end of the Ottoman Caliphate meant mm -hmm. for these populations um, without overstating the extent to which the Ottoman Caliphate really had any tangible import in the lives of Muslims at this point. I think it gets lost somewhat because, you know, until the, the tail end, uh, the Ottoman Caliphate and the Ottoman Sultanate are bound up in the same person. But there is this brief period uh, at the very end of the empire where there is a, a separation of these things. And the caliphate has obviously a, a good deal of symbolic significance, at least for Muslims. What did the abolition of that office by the, you know, the new Turkish Republic, uh, what effect did that have on these communities? So the end of the Ottoman caliphate, you know, as you just said, has, you know, the, it, while it no longer had sort of political or kind of legal control right, over these Muslim communities, it absolutely had a symbolic value. And I think that the end of the Ottoman Empire does become you know, entangled with, with that question uh, or with the end of the caliphate in terms of, sort of what does this mean for a global Muslim community? And what I find are that a lot of communities are both looking local and they're looking global. Um, and they're trying to think about kind of what does it mean to be part of a pan-Islamic community? What does it mean to be part of a Muslim world? Uh, and so you find Muslims in Yugoslavia participating in conferences or trying to, in 1925, I think it is, you know, the government refuses to give the Rais al-Ulema visa to leave to participate in one of these conferences because they're convinced it's you know, undermining Yugoslav sovereignty. But what it what it sparks is sort of a new way of thinking about where kind of the center of Islamic thought and culture and networks is going to be in the future. And I think that uh, it the, we, we again, coming back to these questions of periodization, you know, we often periodize in 1918. But I, I think for um, Muslim societies in southeastern Europe, that the end of the caliphate is a, a really in the end of the Ottoman Empire is a more interesting place to sort of start the next chapter of, of discussion because it is kind of a new world. The Ottomans are no longer the core negotiating partner. They're also not the main point of reference. Emily Grebel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And we look forward to having you back next time to talk more about your excellent book. Everyone check it out. Buy it. Muslims and the Making of Modern Europe. We really appreciate your taking the time. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.